Claudine Hemingway is a descendant of famed writer Ernest Hemingway. We bumped into each other at a party and decided to team up and dive deep into French history, but with a twist, by bringing a spotlight to those lesser-known creatives in France. This is History with a Hemingway. Welcome back to Paris History Advocate Hemingway. I'm back with Claudine, and this is part three of the Mona Lisa. I hope you guys have been following along in Mona's adventure. We're teaching you everything there is to know about her, and I'll let Claudine take it from here. Yeah, this has been kind of fun. And at the rate I'm going, we'll be doing this for about four years. <laughs> <laughs> There's so much information. There's so much that I have found um, that I want to share about it to kind of give a new appreciation for uh, the Mona Lisa, which basically I began this because selfishly, as I've mentioned in the past episodes, um, because I talk about her all the time on Tours of the Louvre. I was like, I've got to find some new information because I'm getting tired of hearing myself talk. I mean, I think that we're all going to be much well-versed in Mona Lisa after this, and we'll appreciate I, it so much more. I know. And then you'll go to the Louvre and see her, and you'll know everything about her. But today's episode, we're going to talk about specifically Vincenzo Perugia, which who was the gentleman that stole her, and then also who Lisa was, which we did, I think, in year one. Uh, or maybe it was right after our first year, um, our 50th episode, we talked a little bit about three ladies of the Louvre, meaning Wing Victory, Venus de Milo, and the Mona Lisa. But we're going to go into a little more detail now. But first, we'll talk about Vincenzo. So Vincenzo, who was the one her, as you know from the past two episodes, was born on October 8th, 1881 in Dimenza, in which is in northern Italy, very close to the French border, just right up there in the very north side. He was the oldest of five children, and he began working at the age of 12 as a house painter in Milan. I mean, back then you had to go to work pretty early. You had to just basically grow up and be an adult. Yeah, it was time to get to work, kids. Time to get to work. Um, in 1908, Vincenzo decided to move to Paris, where he, after he arrived, he became very sick and was hospitalized um, for lead poisoning, which is a little nugget that'll come into play a little bit later on. Um, moving away from the painting business, he got a job working for the A. Gobier Company that had worked on the glass and windows of the Louvre since 1832. That's pretty cool. Pretty cool. So uh, that's the company's not in business anymore. I looked it up because I thought, I wonder if they still are around and if they have a picture of him on their wall, but <laughs> they're not around anymore. But at that time, unhinged people kept going into the Louvre, tossing paint, slashing paintings. So that's when the Louvre decided that the most important pieces need to be protected with new frames and glass. Vincenzo time with the Gobier company was ideal. His French co-workers picked on him and called him macaroni, which is, you know, it's so funny because that sounds like such a, you know, fourth grade <laughs> insult. <laughs> I don't think they were the smartest bunch. I don't think they were the smartest bunch. But needless to say, he became um, the best at what he did. And when the Louvre needed the frames of to for the Italian masters replaced, Vincenzo was the only one they asked. And of course, I just said the Italian masters. So you kind of figure out what happened there. Each day for a year, Perugia was up close and personal with each of these Italian paintings that had once belonged to the kings of France. After the Raphaels were complete, Vincenzo tackled the Leonardo da Vinci's and, of course, the Mona Lisa. Because remember, this is 1911. This is before she's stolen. So she's not really, you know, like we talked about last week when she was moved out in 1870, she went in like convoy number two, just some random crate. She wasn't 
she was still Da Vinci, a Da Vinci, which was still pretty amazing, but not to how she's handled today. Yeah, definitely. She wasn't famous. She wasn't famous. But this gave him a very in-depth knowledge of the future star of the Louvre, although he hadn't decided to steal her quite yet. One theory that has been floated around that he chose the Mona Lisa because it resembled one of his girlfriends. Um, when his tiny apartment was inspected after his arrest, they found over 90 letters from a, wooden na- a woman named Mathilde. She is a mystery woman that is also tied to one of his few brushes with the law prior to the big theft. Vincenzo saw Mathilde one night in a Parisian dance hall and saw another man talking to her. She brushed him off um, when this man stabbed her. Vincenzo zoomed in to be the knight shining armor, took her to a home of an older Italian woman in his neighborhood who cared for her. The two of them exchanged letters for about two years, um, but we don't know anything other than her first name, and we have not ever seen a picture of her. But that that wasn't why he, he picked the Mona Lisa. Uh, but he wasn't a stranger to the police. He, he was in the system. Um, his fingerprints were already in the system. But in those days, the fingerprints were on paper. And so a stack of a thousand criminals had to be searched through to find the matching thumbprint of the thumb, you know, the print that they found on the frame. Um, and of course, they weren't doing that. Yeah, there wasn't much fingerprinting going on back then. Yeah. I mean, it's so like, you know, I called last week, I called it like, you know, in some ways it was the perfect crime, but that crime could not happen today. (laughs) There's no way if the same (laughs) thing happened. Well, first of all, he wouldn't even get out of the loop. I mean, maybe he'd get out of the loop. Actually, no, because it's all covered in glass now. So Now it's all covered in glass and you've got six people at all times. But, you know, I don't think you could take a painting, even though somebody did um, years ago, he up in the Sully wing, because I've also looked up what other thefts have happened. And I'll talk about those in a future episode. But somebody actually went up to a painting in the second floor of the Sully wing where I was just in there yesterday morning. Like it's me and a guard every like I see a guard every half an hour. That's it. <laughs> and somebody took a switchblade and just went up to it and didn't have any glass on and just sliced it out of the frame, folded up, walked out the Louvre. And they've never seen it since. I mean, Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think it probably would be somewhat easy to do in some places, um, but, you know, don't try it. Stay away from the artwork. Only Stay away from the eyes. Art. <laughs> yeah. On June 23rd, 1908, he was arrested for an attempted robbery and a few months later again for a fight over a prostitute and was sentenced to eight days in jail. Um, the working theory was that Vincenzo believed Napoleon had stolen her from Italy For decades, his daughter and family believed he had taken her as an act of patriotism. However, that was all dispelled when letters were found where he repeatedly said he had a large day, large payday happening soon, and he was going to go on a vacation down to Capri. Um, Following his arrest, he was held in the Italian prison and worshipped like a king. Strangers offered to pay for his lawyer. Women sent him love letters and brought him flowers each day, and the Italian papers claimed him as a hero. Wait, what? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because he because he did this. They all thought, oh, you know, he was doing this for the love of his country and she deserves to be back here because she, as I last met week, the letter he sent to the gallery owner in Florence said that it was painted by an Italian, so it belongs to Italy. Well, at least he was honored somewhere. <laughs> somewhere, yeah. 
So the day after um, her triumphant return to the Louvre, um, when she came back on January 4th, 1914, he, on January 5th, was in front of an Italian judge. He claimed that all the Italian paintings in the Louvre had been stolen by Napoleon. Apparently, they didn't have, um, for each painting, they didn't have plaques on the wall back then like we do now because it would tell you the provenance on it, <laughs> that it would say that where it came it says on for the Mona Lisa, it says it's a collection of Francois Premier. So I don't, they must not have had those back then. I should see if I could find out when they use those. But he also blamed his lead poisoning for his actions that it just made him crazy. I mean, I could kind of buy that. I mean, yeah, I mean, he could. I mean, if you're like, you know, with, I mean, back then we're talking about the 19th century. So probably all the paint was lead. Yeah, I think everybody was a little crazy back then. A little bit crazy, yeah. Um, he was in jail. He had already been in jail for seven months when his trial was delayed until June 14, 1914. Many of the former French officials involved in the case had retired or died. His lawyer, Renzo Carlina and, Fer and Fernando Tergetti, argued that keeping the trial in Italy, not France, worked in his favor. When his case was settled, he was sentenced to one year and 15 days. On July 28th, World War I was declared, and the next day, Perugio's case was reduced to seven months and nine days. He had been in jail since December 14th, 1913, so authorities declared that he had served enough time and he was released the same day. Whoa. Holy cow. So he only went to jail for stealing the most important piece of art in the world now for seven months. That's pretty wild. I mean, do you think they would have been harder on him today? Oh, I think so, for sure. Yeah. I mean, there's people that have stolen art. There is like a famous forger um, and he's gotten a lot more than that. Yeah, I think they went pretty light on it. It went pretty light, but it also was World War One was starting all of that. It was the Dreyfus affair, like all of these things kind of were the perfect storm for him to uh, to get out of it. Um, but there's a part coming up here that it still kills me when I when I think about this. The perfect crime of one of the greatest pieces of art resulted in nothing more than a hand slapped um, because he was viewed as a hero. He returned to a small village in northern um, Italy, and then he joined the army fighting for the country he loved. In 1921, he uh, married, and with his new wife, he returned to France and opened up a paint shop. One day, he decided to take her to Paris and visit the Louvre, and this really kills me. On a Sunday morning in 1923, Vincenzo was now known as Pietro Perugia, changed his first name. He walked into the Grand Gallery and introduced his wife to the Mona Lisa. No. You think it's true? That's hilarious. Yeah, because I saw this documentary that was of his talking to his daughter, Celestina, which I will tell you a little bit about her in a second. But in the in the video, it's she this guy, I think he worked for like I think he was a writer on like Seinfeld or Everybody Loves Raymond, some show like that. And he was obsessed with the theft of the Mona Lisa. And I will see if I could find the documentary. Maybe it's on YouTube and I'll put it on the in my show notes on my website. But he goes and he talks to Celestina, his daughter, and because she believes, like I said, that he did this for patriotism, but they found that, no, he didn't. They have like all, they found like actual letters that he wrote. Um, and then her children go, one of her children goes to Paris 
and goes into the Louvre. Not only does it go into the Louvre, but the Louvre let them film this on closing day. Into the, I was like, I don't know if I was a Louvre, I would let the descendant of the guy who stole her just wander on in. <laughs> that is so funny. Only in France, I feel like. Only in France. But they did say that he went there. They were, you know, in the documentary, like he went to the Louvre with his wife. I mean, what do you say? Like, hey, look, she used to be under my oven for two years. <laughs> All is forgiven. I mean, he served his time. <laughs> I mean, if there's, I would think that they would have like his photo. Like it, as soon as he walked in the door, you'd have everybody like chasing him down. Like, oh my God, it's here. <laughs> like a micro celebrity. I know. It'd be like Da Vinci Code. They need to make Da Vinci Code too, and it's all about Perugia. I mean, there should just be a whole like series recreating all this. I did find, and I think it was, I think it was Jodie Foster, um, and it it was an article in 2020 saying that she had purchased um, a book that was about the theft of the Mona Lisa, and she was to turn it to a movie. And I cannot find anything since that article in 2020. I'm sure COVID did something to delay it, but hopefully they do that later. I really hope they make it happen. That would be fantastic. Yeah. And I, and then I could pick it all apart because it'd be inaccurate. It's amazing doing this research that I've been doing now for five months, the different versions of things I find. And I keep using like the main Louvre stuff as kind of my number one source material. But it's funny how like you could write, read articles and things like that or what people put on their blogs or website. And it's like, no, that's not how that happened. <laughs> I mean, yeah I mean that's the good and bad thing about the internet right you get all yeah. kinds of information it is it's pretty interesting but I mean my exhaustive research you know I do so much of it because I want to get it right <laughs> but on, on on his birthday on Vincenzo's birthday October 8th 1925 he was holding a bottle of champagne he fell to his feet and died instantly of a massive heart attack his daughter, Celestina, was just 19 months old. She was too young to remember him, um, but she claimed, you know, that he had, you know, done this out, out of the love of country. Um, but, and then she died in 2011, but she did realize by the time she died that her father had stolen um, the Mona Lisa because he also wanted a payday. And if if you watch this documentary, which I'll, I'll, I'll look for it and put it on my website, it's kind of sad, too, because she they go and they're sitting with his, her daughters and he, the guy's like, OK, this is what I found. And he didn't. He did. He stole it because he also wanted the money. And she kind of gets upset. She's like, I don't need to hear anymore. It's kind of sad. It is sad. And I always thought it was because he was a patriot, but it was just the money at the end of the day. Yeah, I mean, I think it was a little bit of the Patriot, but, you know, he had wanted to steal, he, the painting he wanted to steal wasn't even the Mona Lisa, and but it was much bigger, and which we'll talk about later. But it was funny because it wasn't like he just had his sights on the Mona Lisa and that was going to be it. Because again, she wasn't the biggest thing, you know, the most important thing in the museum. I mean, there's so much to digest here. So much Mona Lisa information, guys. I mean, how will we ever be the same after this? <laughs> I know. Well, Perugio, when he died, which on his birthday, the, the amount of times I find that historical figures die on their birthday or within a few days, it's kind of a crazy, I mean, it's obviously just the luck of the draw, but it's this really crazy phenomenon that I have found how many people die within a few days of their birthday. But when he was he died, 
He was buried in the Condé Cemetery in the tiny town of Saint-Maur-de-Fosse, which is just on the eastern edge of Paris. It's right by Vincennes. Um, when the family stopped paying for his plot, his body was exhumed in the 1950s and paced, pa uh, placed into a communal grave. There's no grave marker there now for the notorious thief, but I guess you could go to the Louvre and visit Lisa, which I'll tell you now all about Mona Lisa and who she was. I I think it's kind of fitting he was just thrown into a mass grave. I know. I kind of want to go there because it's actually like it's just a quick, met, you know, Arriere A line. And I kind of want to go to the cemetery, even though there's no marker there. Yeah. I mean, why not? <laughs> you get to see Mona all the time. Now you got to go full circle and see. I know. I got it. Full circle. And then I'm going to track down all the copies, which, again, we'll talk about that another time. But Lisa herself. And I remember years ago. When I, I found this book in the Louvre, I don't know if they still have it anymore, but it was in French or English. And it's this little book kind of almost looks like it's it's got like drawings and everything. It kind of looks like it's for kids, but it's not. And it's basically called Why is the Mona Lisa Famous? And it has a very tiny paragraph about the theft because I'm sure the Louvre is like, we're not going to, you know, it's written by the Louvre. We don't really want to, you know, endorse that. But I remember reading it and had said that this is who she was and this was her birthday. And I remember thinking, oh, she was a real person, which, of course, she's a real person because somebody modeled for it. But it's she's become this larger than life thing that when I do tell people on tours that who she really was, they're always surprised. I know because you kind of just we've been idolizing her for so long it's kind of hard to imagine she you know you thought maybe she came out of his mind or something yeah yeah and i mean there's there is one theory where some people think that it's it's uh leonardo and drag which it's not <laughs> i've definitely heard that before too yeah so lisa herself lisa di antonio giardini was born in florence on june 15th 1479 to a noble landowning Tuscan family, not far from the Palazzo Pitti, where the Medici family lived, was a home of her parents and Anton Maria Giardini and Lucrenzio de Caccia. The family lived on the corner of Via Maggio when Lisa was born and then moved to the other side of the river in 1494 near Santa Croce um, between Via del Pepe. Um, they discovered that they had their new neighbors, the Giaconda. On March 5th, 1495, at 15 years old, Lisa married the son of their neighbor, Francesco del Giaconda. Francesco was uh, rich, very rich from um, his family that they were in the silk business. He was a widow, a father, and 19 years older than Lisa, who also had a somewhat famous family as a neighbor. Living just a few doors down um, was the Ser Piero da Vinci, the father of Leonardo. Wow, that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. A year later, they welcomed their first child, Piero, quickly followed uh, by Piera in 1497, Camilla in 1499, and Marietta in 1500, Andrea in 1502, and finally Gioconda in 1507. So Gioconda, Gioconda was the name. <laughs> That's sadly, <laughs> yeah, sadly, only two survived past adolescence. Um, I saw something also online of a 
these two daughters that say that they are the descendant of Lisa and like they're it's like I don't know they're like seventh generation or something like that uh but it was funny because they were interviewed for something on like American TV and both of them have like the long black hair they kind of style their hair like Lisa does in the painting (laughs) that's so funny I need to see that yeah um, Francesco became a civil servant and was elected to one esteemed post after another from 1499 to 1512. Once thought to be working for the exiled Medici family, he was tossed into prison until the Medici's returned and bailed him out. In 1502, Francesco commissioned the neighbor's kid, Leonardo da Vinci, to paint a portrait of his wife. Leonardo was at his height of fame at the moment, but he had just completed the Last Supper in Milan and he was in need of money. So he accepted the job having... And he, at that time, there's some very famous women that wanted their uh, portraits done. And he said, no. So it is also kind of interesting that this is the one he did. Um, Lisa had just given birth to her son, Andrea, and she sat for the portrait and considered quite large at the time um, and for the subject matter. And we'll go into that, uh, some more details about the painting itself. But Leonardo began painting her in February of 1503. And for days on end, lovely Lisa sat in front of him with, and he had a band playing there because he said that she was very quiet and just seemed kind of sad. So he brought a band in, um, in to play music for her all day while she was sitting there to keep her spirits up. A band? A band. <laughs> Actually, the word is orchestra, but I'm like, I don't, I doubt. I mean, when I think of orchestra, it's like 30 people. <laughs> Holy cow. <laughs> yeah. Four or five years later, um, we don't know specifically the date he started it. It was some things that used to be that they would say it was in the early 1500s, but they found a letter a year ago that somebody had talked to him and they had said they saw this painting actually in February 1503. It took four or five years, but he still also never finished it. Later, um, he... uh, Once he was done with it in Florence, he took it with him to Milan and Rome and then, of course, to France. Um, But she never saw the unfinished painting. Um, Francesco uh, contacted, uh, he got the plague in 1539 and died. Lisa left Florence to live with her daughter in the Orsolo uh, convent where she also died July 15th, 1942. Um, which is, you know, like a month to the day of when she was born. But Leonardo liked to meditate on this painting and he worked a little bit on each painting at a time. And of course, you know, when I uh, give tours of the Louvre and I'm talking about Da Vinci and the fact that the Louvre owns six Leonardo Da Vinci's and that is more than any country or museum has of his paintings because he only did a handful of paintings he only did 13 or 14 paintings and i say or because the salvador mundi that they've discovered years ago and sold at auction for like billions of dollars we don't know if that actually was leonardo and the louvre set won't say it is because they've never seen it and if you've seen some documentaries about the salvador mundi which if you haven't check them out because they're really interesting. But when they found it, only about an eighth of it was still in the original hand of Leonardo. And this woman restore basically repainted the whole thing. So even if it is, can you still say it is Leonardo when basically 92% of it is done by a woman in the, in the 21st century? Yeah, not so much. 
Not so much. So the Louvre owns more than any other country in the world. And Italy still is mad about that because when they did the huge uh, exhibition in 2019 for the anniversary of his um, death, they the French government and the, and the Italian government were like bumping heads trying to work out a deal on bringing some of the stuff from Italy to France. And even like the uh, the Ventruzio man, the, the drawing, they did send that up, but they only sent it for like 30 days and then they had to send it back because Italy just is still mad about it. Some grudges are never let go. I know, I should talk to Giuseppe about it. He'll probably go on and we'll probably get in a fight about it. France versus Italy. <laughs> <laughs> But he did, you know, he brought it with him. Um, and then we'll talk again um, another day about how she came to France and what she did while she was here. Which will be very fun. Yeah, guys, make sure you keep tuning in. And if you missed part one and two, just go back and listen now. And make sure you head over to ClaudineHemingway.com to learn more and continue to learn with us. This is going to be a multi-part series. As we said, you're going to know everything about the Mona Lisa. Thanks for listening today, guys. If you're interested in learning more about Claudine, her tours, history, and the beautiful photographs that she posts all over Instagram, tune into her website, claudinehemingway.com.